closing in on the end of Genesis now. We're going to pick up tonight in chapter 37. The story of Joseph is well-known, beloved, often retold, but I think we'll find over the next few weeks that it still has some surprises for us. Um, and one of the things I want you to notice as we move through it is, is how, how Joseph's story fits into the stories we've already seen. I think because this story is so well-loved, because it's been retold, we can miss what's already happened and how that shapes our understanding of the story. Because in a lot of ways, we're going to see echoes, echoes of, of what has come before, um, intentionally woven through the story. But let's just pick up in chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, these are the generations of Jacob. And so we move into the final toldot, the final book of the book of Genesis, number 11 in a list of 11 sections. And as always, it talks here about the father of the family that we're going to focus on. And so although this is the generations of Jacob, it's really going to be the story of Jacob's sons, focusing primarily on three, uh, I guess we could call it four characters, Joseph, of course, Judah, Reuben, and Benjamin, okay? And not only will they be the only ones who are named throughout the story, but they are recurring important characters, and that's where we'll learn things. But this final told out of Genesis rolls all the way through the end of the book in chapter 50. And so it opens here, continuing in verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, he was a boy I, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. And so here we see Joseph, young, late teens, out with his much older brothers. Remember, Joseph is the son of Rachel, who for many years in her marriage to her husband uh, was barren. And so all of, her, all of his older brothers are separated in age um, for the most part, they're all um, in the next phase of life. At this point, they um, are starting to settle down. They get married. They're adults. He's an adolescent. And so it, it tells us here that he's out in the fields with them. And then it tells us that he brought a bad report of them to their father. Okay, so Joseph comes home and he tells his father a negative report of what's going on. Now, many try and contend that Joseph is one of the few characters in Scripture who makes it through sinless, who, who's just not, not that he wasn't sinful in his life, but the record doesn't record any clear flaws. In the opening sentence, we may be actually finding the opposite. And the reason I say that is because every time this word for report, every single time, all six of them in the Old Testament it's used, it's used of a false and slanderous report every time. And so when the 10 spies come out of Israel and say, there's giants in the land, we can't possibly take it, they use this word. In Proverbs, in Psalms, every time that this word is translated in the English, at least in my Bible, it's translated as slander. 
okay? And so it may be here that what the author is saying is that Joseph intentionally brings a false, a slanderous report about his brothers. But even if that's not the case, even if this uniquely is the one place where it's better to translate this as just a bad report in terms of content and not in terms of motive or anything else, it still makes him a narc, right? We, we still have plenty of room to question his intentions. It's advantageous for him to portray his brothers in this way. And to be honest, is Jacob really going to be surprised that his sons are a mess? Remember, these are the ones that slaughtered an entire town of innocent people just chapters ago. But nonetheless, uh, as we would expect, this becomes a point of contention between Jacob and his brothers. But it's not the last one. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now pause for a second and recognize the mistake and the fact that Jacob, or as he's called here, Israel should know better of favoritism. Remember that Jacob's father, Isaac, had a favorite as well and it wasn't Jacob, right? It was Esau. And that was a frustration and a difficulty and very problematic in the life of Jacob. And yet here, he, knowing better, knowing the consequences of that, treats his son above all the others. Why? Because he's, A, the son of his old age. He's the baby of the family. Benjamin, at this point, Jacob's last son, is not yet born. He will be very quickly. Um, So he's the baby of the family. And then on top of that, he's the only son at this point of his favorite wife, of Rachel. And so that's the second reason why Jacob should know better about favoritism. He's been married to Rachel and Leah, these sisters, and he's seen how favoritism is played out there in a terrible and destructive way, but he perpetuates it, and he even codifies it by creating a special garment just for Joseph. In the text here, it's called a robe of many colors, but to be honest, we're not exactly sure what this word means. Um, There are arguments that the words may point to a robe with long sleeves as opposed to one with cut-off sleeves. But either way, it was different. It was unique. And most people believe that it was a status symbol. It was like buying your son a three-piece suit. And we will recognize very quickly that Joseph wore this thing everywhere. Which, once again, I think shows us a little bit about Joseph's character. He liked being the beloved. He liked flaunting the fact that he was the beloved. He knew that he was his father's favorite son, and he made sure everyone else knew as well. Verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. We already saw this play out with Jacob and Esau, the contention that favoritism played. We saw it play out with Rachel and Leah, the contention that favoritism played. And surprise, surprise, the same thing happens here, and we should be feeling the weight of these echoes. Okay? This, this, is the, this is the dark and stormy night of this story. It's the setup where we're wondering what's behind the door, or what just went bump in the night. That's what's going on here. We're starting to see these things, and if that weren't enough... We get to reason three why there's a problem between him and his brothers. First, he narks on his brothers or he brings this slanderous report. Second, his father shows him favoritism and everybody sees it and so they hate him. And then third, verse five, Joseph had a dream and when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And so he sees this dream, and what it is, it's a dream of all of these um, bundles of wheat, one for each of his brothers, one for him, but all of his brother's bundles of wheat start to bow down to his bundle of wheat. Now, a dream is a dream. And I think we all know what it's like to say, you would not believe the dream I had last night. Um, but it's worth pointing out that not only does Joseph seem to find this dream significant, and we'll see that it's significant as well, but did you hear the repeated refrain of behold? Three times as he's telling this, he doesn't just say behold and then tell the whole dream. He says behold tells a part and then behold, he is enraptured by this dream. Behold is a word that's used in the Hebrew Bible, translated in English as behold, to draw attention. It says pay attention, focus in, zoom in on this, pause, listen to this, okay? And he wants him to get, he wants his brothers to hear every line of this dream. And how do they respond? His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? Okay, when they use the word indeed there, uh, they're kind of um, cynically accepting it. They're going, oh, that's right. We're going to bow down to you. Yes, Joseph, indeed, that's what's going to happen, right? Uh, but it tells us here that they hated him for his dream. In fact, it adds it, and it's already said it once, it says it again. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then, verse 9, he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. So he has a second dream, and it's a bit more profound. First, numerically, it's different, right? The first dream, he sees 11 of his brothers sheaves bowing down to him. Here it's the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Um, is that right? Let's make sure that's right. Yes, the sun and moon and 11 stars. And so first it's just all of his brothers, but now with 11 we know that this includes Benjamin. That's the point I wanted to make. And so there's some time between these dreams. Benjamin is born through this, which also means that Joseph's mother dies at this point. Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And so this dream, he sees not only 11 stars, one for each of his brothers, but also the sun and the moon. And even Jacob, his father, picks up on the imagery of what that's supposed to be as being the entire family is going to bow down to Joseph. Now, that means a lot more in this society than today's society. Okay, Remember that this is a, uh, a honor-based society. It's patriarchal. Um, you are to respect the patriarch, the elder. The orientation of this entire family is towards Jacob. For the youngest son, you know, to, to turn the attention and say, no, actually, the respect is going to flow the other way is a striking statement. But we see in the response to it two different attitudes. The same hatred we saw in his brothers, the same amount of unbelief. Jacob does rebuke him for it, and he says, come on, is this really going to happen? something about it sticks. It just says that he pondered it. It's the same phrase, almost word for word, of when, um, uh, of when the uh, magi, these wise men, come and they speak 
to, to Mary about Jesus, and she, it says that she pondered these things in her heart, right? She says, well, that's interesting. She holds on to it, but it leaves it there. I want you to notice what's missing from this that has been involved in the other dreams that we've seen. God isn't mentioned. It doesn't say that God gave him a dream or God appeared to him in a dream. God's not a character in the dream. Unlike the multiple dreams that we've seen so far, these ones are a little bit more ambiguous. At this point in the story, they're just a teenager's dreams. Okay? We have good reason to believe that they're important, but it's ambiguous on if this is uh, you know, illusions of grandeur or God actually doing something. It's just left on the table. Even when we get later in the story and we look at the other dreams that make up Joseph's story, the dreams that are given to the cupbearer uh, and to the butler, the dreams that Pharaoh has, they are noticeably different in, in that sense. But here, the interpretation is just natural. Everybody sees what it means. They're there, and the story moves on. Verse 12, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And they said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brothers. And he said, Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And so his brothers take the sheep to go find green pastures. They go all the way to Shechem. This is a long distance, 60 miles from Hebron. Okay? And so he takes Joseph, who is a teenager, but maybe even in his early 20s at this point. Maybe a few years have gone by, at least enough time for his younger brother Benjamin to be born. He goes looking for his brothers, and he gets first to Shechem, and he can't find them. In fact, listen to how the narrator says it in verse 15. A man found him wandering in the fields. Not that he found a resident of Shechem and said, hey, have you seen my brothers? He's just wandering. He doesn't know at this point where to look. He can't find his brothers anyway. And some person spots him and luckily happens to know that his brothers have moved on to Dothan. But what I want you to recognize uh, that's going on in this story is a suspension of resolve, right? We should have some trepidation about Jacob's genius plan here, okay? We know that Jacob's brothers, or that Joseph's brothers hate him. We know that Jacob is so blinded for his love for his son, he can't see the problem uh, and the tension between his brothers. This is not a good idea. Right? Jacob, of all people, knows that being left alone with Esau would have been bad news. And so when he gets to Shechem and nothing happens, it's like when the suspense in a horror movie is just drawn out a little bit more until you can almost not bear it. And so he arrives to Dothan, and notice what happens, verse 18. The perspective shifts. Uh, shifts. We're no longer sitting with Jacob or sorry, sitting with Joseph on the way, traveling with him, looking for his brothers, were now in his brother's camp, looking over their shoulder, overhearing a conversation. Verse 18, they saw him from afar before he came near to them, and they conspired against him to kill him. Now notice how quick this comes. They see him. Here comes Joseph. They conspire a plan all the way to the point of murder before he arrives. Okay. There's really one of two options, and I, both, I think they're both very interesting. Uh, one is that they're thinking incredibly quickly. 
Like imagine you're, you're, out, uh, you're out in eastern Washington, you're with a bunch of sheep, and in the distance you see a person and you recognize that person, okay? How long do you have until they're in hearing range? It, it's, it's not necessarily very long, but you can extend that distance if there's something recognizable about the person. And we know, because we're going to keep reading, Joseph is wearing that coat, right? And so especially if it is truly a coat of many colors, but even if it's one that's just fancy dress wear and he's wearing it out of the house, whatever it is that marks this coat, they see him from a distance, okay? And so it's hard to tell here if the point is... Um, the point is that they conspire very quickly or that they spot him a far way off. Um, but either way, they come up with this plan, and the plan is death to Joseph. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. The word there is a little bit more complex than dreamer. It's not somebody who dreams. It's, it's better translated the master of dreams. Okay? You know how you pick up those titles from your siblings, those nicknames that you'd rather not have? This is theirs for Joseph, the master of dreams, okay? Notice that they are harboring resentment about that particular issue. And so what happens? Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. Then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what has become of his dreams. Now the story so far has been relatively short in verbiage. We know that they hated him and that they hated him even more, but it's probably still surprising to us that their first opportunity they plot murder and then a cover-up. This is how strained their relationship is. And so the plan is just kill him, get rid of the body. Remember, they're more than 60 miles away from home, all the way over in Dolphin. Uh, their, their father at this point is advanced in age, you know, uh, and then they've got a cover-up story that, that he was killed by a wild animal. So they have all this. Um, but Reuben, verse 21, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. So they weren't unified in this opinion. And smartly, Reuben comes up with an alternative without expressing his concern about plan A. This is what he says in verse 22. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand in him. That, we're told, he might rescue him out of their hand and restore them to his father. And so he basically says, look, a pit is plenty. We don't have to kill him ourselves. We'll just leave him. But his real plan is somehow to smuggle Joseph back to safety. And so what happens next? Verse uh, 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now these pits are big limestone cisterns, okay? It's the same thing that they threw Jeremiah the prophet in. Um, And so the fact that there's no water in it is the distance between alive and dead, okay? The author wants us to know right now that he's sitting in a prison, not drowning in a well, okay? And so he reminds us, he points out here that it was an empty pit, that there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, which is striking, isn't it? They come up with this plot, they attack him, take his cloak, throw him into a pit, and then they sit down to have a meal together. And then, looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
once again, I, I just think the dialogue here is striking. Judah goes, you know what? If we kill him, we're not going to make any money. It, it just doesn't it seem like, it, at the very least, a very callous way to think, if not just a really surprising way. But the, the thing just keeps getting better. They recognize the distance has given them this opportunity, and so he says, instead of killing him, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, verse 27. Let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. I gotta say, the distance there, the justification that says, well, he is our brother, so we'll just sell him into slavery, right? It it, it sounds so outlandish. But that's how intense the hatred was. And so they come up with this plan. Verse 28, the Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. All the way back into the Babylonian records before this, up to the history of Israel, this is the standard going rate for a slave, 20 shekels of silver. Okay, so they get the full price. And it's a relatively good profit. Uh, A shepherd over the course of a year would make about two shekels, okay? So them spreading this between all of their brothers, delete Benjamin, that's 10 people, that's, that's, you know, a year's income in a single trade, and they got rid of the dreamer. That's the way that they see this. But notice there was somebody who wasn't involved, verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and where shall I go? So I want you to notice there's two people who were reticent about this original plot to kill Joseph. Judah we already saw, uh, and Reuben is the other one. He was trying to rescue him, and for some reason, he's MIA when the Ishmaelites, when these Midianite traders come up. Uh, And so when he comes back, the deed is done, and they just hand him his portion of the prophets, and he goes, oh, this is serious business. He tears his clothes, which is a Jewish symbol of mourning. It's a recognition of how this is going to impact Notice what he says. Uh, He says, the boy is gone and where shall I go? Okay, what he's recognizing is he's going to be held responsible. He says, how is father going to receive this? Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. So they take the coat They kill a goat, they cover it in blood, and then they bring it to their father and they just say, boy, this sure looks like Joseph's coat. And Joseph comes to the conclusion that he was killed by a wild animal. What I want you to notice here, though, is that Jacob deceived Isaac with clothing and a dead goat. And now Jacob is deceived by his own sons with clothing and a dead goat. And to tell you the truth, as we'll see in just a minute, it doesn't end there. There is this echo, this consequence, this articulation of what Galatians explains as the fact that we reap what we sow. This constant reverberation. We're seeing a familial, constant aspect of deception, and it's just reverberating through history. And so... He sees this, he comes to the conclusion, verse 33, he identified and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. Hook, lying, and sinker, he buys this whole plot. Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth 
on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. So this is what he says. He starts the mourning process, and after a while, his family tries to comfort him, get him to put back on his normal clothes, and he says, I will mourn till the day I die. I just want you to notice that this is a backfiring of the older brother's plan, right? Clearly, they're interested in their father's love, and by getting Joseph off the map, they thought there'd be more to go around, and it's just exacerbated the problem. In one sense, they've lost their father. All he can think about now is his lost son instead of his beloved son. So, um, thus his father wept for him, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so we see here that he travels along with these traders, and then the traders sell him as a slave to an Egyptian by the name of Potiphar, who's a captain of the guard. He oversees the guards of Pharaoh's household. And then the scene changes. We go away from Joseph. In fact, if you were to look over at chapter 39, I want you to notice that 39 opens with a reminder of what we just read. And so here it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Okay? Why the repetition? Because he's going to detour. He's going to rabbit trail. He's going to talk about something else. And when you read chapter 38, it's surprising what he wants to talk about on this particular occasion because it's not a story you want to hear. And so you have to go, why? Why in the world do we have to hear about Judah and his wicked sons and this plot of Tamar pretending to be a prostitute? What in the world does this have to do with the story of Joseph? There's a few things you need to keep in mind. Okay, The first is, these are the generations of Jacob. Right? This is the story of Joseph, but it's not merely the story of Joseph. On top of that, there is a technique throughout the Bible of characterization, which is pretty simple. You just take two characters and you lay out their behavior side by side to create a comparison. And so what are we going to find in, gen- or in chapter 38? We're going to find Judah's uh, sexual problems. And then what do we find in chapter 39 when we return to Joseph? constant, uh, you know, temptation of Potiphar's wife calling him to lie with him, and he refuses, okay? There's a contrast being created between these two men. When we see Joseph's behavior in light of Judah's, it helps us to see Joseph's as more profoundly. Just one more illustration of where this plays out. In the gospel narratives, in all of them, you have both the story of Jesus's trial and the story of Peter's denial of Christ, But only in John's gospel does he interweave them so you jump between scenes. Jesus' trial, Peter denies Christ. Back to Jesus' trial, Peter denies Christ. What is John doing when he arranges those things in that way? He's showing the unfaithfulness of Peter in contrast with the faithfulness of Jesus. And so it's intentional storytelling here, but there really is a third reason. As I said, the story of Joseph is not really a story about Joseph. I believe it's actually a story about Judah. And here's why I say this, okay? For one, through this crazy chapter that we're about to read, Judah is going to have twin boys, and one of them is going to be a man named Perez. Now, Perez's great, 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 great grandchild is going to be a man named Boaz. And Boaz's great, 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 great grandchild is going to be a king named David. 
and you follow the line all the way to Matthew chapter 1, and it gets all the way to Jesus. We've seen throughout Genesis this genealogy that's being followed through, and uh, Joseph may be the beloved son of Jacob, but he's not where the lineage is going. Also, the Judah we have in the last chapter and the Judah we'll encounter after everything resolves are worlds apart. The only room we have for development of his character, understanding how he goes from young Judah who's willing to sell his brother into slavery to old Judah who's willing to take slavery upon himself to protect Benjamin, the only thing that happens in between is this. Okay. So, with that being said, let's read chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So we find here that Judah travels away from home to find a wife. He finds a wife, he has a baby, he names the baby Ur. She conceived again, verse 4, and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And so Judah goes out, takes a wife from the Canaanites, has three sons, Ur, Onan, and uh, Shelah, okay? Now, I think there was something I wanted to say there. Let me see if I can recall what it was before we move forward. Once again, the reason why we're hearing this story is because the lineage stops with Judah. Judah is a bachelor for this genealogy that God's been tracing all the way back from the seed of Eve. We have a dead end. We have a problem. And so here we see how it's resolved. Okay? In the same way, when you read the book of Ruth, we have a problem. Boaz, this same line, is a hardly, barely, only slightly still eligible bachelor. He's an aging man who doesn't have a wife. And the story of Ruth is actually how God incredibly brings about this Moabitess woman to give Boaz a wife so that we get a King David, so that we get a Messiah, okay? So the same thing is happening here. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and his name was Tamar. Notice how much time we've just covered right? We start probably right after Joseph is taken into Egypt, but this story in chapter 38 covers many years. We're going to double back on the Joseph timeline and work that forward and catch up, but over the course of the 20 years that Joseph is leaving in Egypt, or living in Egypt, we have this story with Judah, and so his firstborn son grows to the age of eligibility, and he takes a wife for him, a woman named Tamar, verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Okay? It's nondescript. It doesn't explain what it was that Ur was doing. But God doesn't put up with it, and he just takes his life. However, Ur hasn't had a son. Okay? Now, there was a law that we're told about in the book of Deuteronomy, which is not only found in the Bible, but in all sorts of Middle Eastern societies that we call the Leveret Law, okay? The Leveret Law worked like this. Because the ancient world saw children and your ancestry and your heritage and, you know, your offspring is so important, it was a huge difficulty 
when a, a uh, man died before he'd sired a son, before he had a child. And so the Leveret Law would take any of his eligible brothers and marry them to the widow, and the first child that they had together would be raised up to inherit his father's name and his father's inheritance. Okay? I recognize that it sounds weird to us. Our, our desires are completely different. But this is the model that we see working in this. And so Tamar is left a widow. And following custom, uh, verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, his second son, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So he says, you need to keep, keep the leveret law. You need to do what is expected of you. You're not married. Marry your husband's or your brother's widow and raise up a son to inherit your older brother's stuff. Um, verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Just notice very simply that this is not the same as refusing to marry the woman, right? He doesn't say, no, I'm not interested in that, which actually may have been a possibility because if you look at the story uh, of Boaz, where the Leveret Law comes up again, we actually see a conversation between two people who could take over for being Ruth to replace her husband as a widow. Uh, and Boaz has to give the other one deference, and he refuses, so Boaz takes advantage of it. That's not what Onan does. He takes it, but he, uh, he continues to have sex with this woman without allowing, uh, without allowing the possibility of impregnating her. Okay? So he's taking the goods, the advantage of this relationship, without actually fulfilling his commitment. Now, there's many ways we could think about this. The one that I want to focus in on is Tamar. Okay? Yes, this is about Ur. But Ur was a wicked dude. I don't really care about Ur. Tamar is just a woman whose husband died, who doesn't have a child. And now she gets Onan, and Onan just takes advantage of her. Okay, that's what's going on here. So, verse 10, what he did, this particular act of taking the goods without doing his duty, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now, I guess it's worth recognizing here that this doesn't seem like business as usual, right? I mean, what we're seeing is in a small span of time, husbands dropping like, fly by the, dropping like flies by the direct judgment of God, okay? I think we need to just recognize here that God is just and judgment is real. The Bible maintains that reality. And it's very difficult for us as human beings and it's very inappropriate for us to try and gauge what's going on in life and say that death is judgment, right? We're not even good at it. There's an occasion where Paul washes up in a shipwreck on an island and the uh, the occupants of the island are watching him and these other sailors try and get warm by building a fire. And Paul's carrying some wood and a viper crawls out of the wood he's carrying and bites him on the arm. And one of the pagans, one of the islanders says to the other one, he goes, that guy just escaped a shipwreck and then got bit by a snake. God is totally after him. This is a judgment. And Paul just walks up to the fire and shakes the snake off. And it, he just shakes it off. That's, that's the end of the story. And they're like, oh, maybe he's a god, right? They just shift. 
we're not good at judging from this side of eternity, from our viewpoint, what's going on in life. But we've already seen in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're told explicitly here that in this case, the veil is pulled back and, and we see what's going on. As I mentioned from the book of Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, uh, mocked for what we sow, we will also reap. Okay? And so here, it's two out of three brothers down. The, um, the Leveret Law is still in play. There's only one brother, brother left. And so verse 11, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So notice what he says is, look, my youngest son is too young for marriage. So go back home and just hang on and we'll fix this when he's older. But we're also told he has no intent of seeing this through. Why? Because he's seeing a pattern Right? Tamar's first husband, dead. Tamar's second husband, dead. At this point, Judah's line is threatened again because he's down to one son. If he loses this one, then his lineage ends. Okay? And so he's not sure he wants to gamble by giving Tamar another husband. But once again, view this from Tamar's perspective. When she is sent home as a widow, that means that she is confined not to marry anyone else, confined just to sit there because she's actually betrothed to this final son. And betrothal in the ancient world and the Jewish custom included was so, um, was so committed that she would have to have a divorce to walk away from it. It's not like an engagement where you can just not show up at the wedding. Okay? So she is effectively married, not married. And, and uh, Judah has no intention of seeing this thing consummated. So verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, and he is his, fr his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up. So two things happen. Judah's wife dies, and he heads out to shear his sheep, which is not just something you have to do, but also a time of celebration. She goes, now is the opportunity. If I don't do something, this is never going to happen. She, because it says here that she saw that Shayla had grown up, right? She watches the guy get old enough. She never gets the phone call. And so what she does is she takes off her widow's clothing, her mourning clothes. She puts on the veil of a prostitute, and she goes where her father-in-law father is shearing the sheep. Uh, and so it, uh, it continues, for she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. I just, once again, you got to think about this for a second. Notice the hypocrisy. Tamar, you go, you sit, and you wait. You live in your widowhood. Here Judah loses his wife, and the first thing he does is look for sexual gratification. The first thing he does is look for sexual comfort, something that he's denied to Tamar. Also, let's just recognize it may be that Judah's a little bit tipsy. And it could be that the veil that Tamar is wearing is clearly a veil. But I think you also would be uh, 
it would be accurate to think here that he probably hasn't seen Tamar in a long time, right? He doesn't even recognize her. And so he assumes, as she intended, that she's a prostitute, and he basically says, what do you charge? So they continue here, verse 16, he turned to her at the roadside, roadside, come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And he, she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And so what he says here is, I don't have my wallet on me. Uh, I, will, I will pay for this later. You know, it's the wimpy and the, the hamburgers uh, from Popeye, right? I'll gladly give you a dollar tomorrow for a hamburger today. And she says, that doesn't work here. You're going to have to have some sort of collateral. So he gives specifically, uh, verse 18, he said, what shall, pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. Those are the ancient versions of a credit card. Okay. The signet ring would be used, it would have his seal on the top, and so when he was signing a document or making a commitment, he would put it in warm wax and press it there, and it would be a mark of the fact that he had made a commitment. Um, the cord and the staff are both identifiers. It's like the banner of the House of Windsor. It's that type of thing. Okay, um, And so these are his identity. That's what she takes. Verse 18 uh, she says these things in verse 19. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Okay? So this thing goes down, and once again, I want you to notice here the pattern. How is Judah deceived? By a goat and a change of clothes. Just like he deceived Jacob, just like Jacob deceived Isaac. Okay? The pattern is continuing here. And so, what happens? Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He sober up the next day. He knows he owes this pledge. He doesn't even want to go in person, right? Instead, he sends his friend with the goat, but she's nowhere to be found. And so this um, Adulamite uh, asks around. Verse 21, he asks the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. What is he saying here? He's like, I don't want to put up posters, right? Hey, I, I, I utilize this prostitute. I can't seem to find her to pay her. Does anybody know her? Right? He's unwilling to go that step. And so as important as these things are, he just lets them go. So, verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Okay. So he hears that Tamar is pregnant. He knows that she's supposed to be a widow being reserved for his youngest son. And he wants not even the full consequence of the law, above and beyond anything we know in the Bible. It's not just death, it's death by burning. There are only two places where death by burning is mentioned uh, in the law. One has to do with the unfaithfulness of a priest child, so sexual infidelity in the family of the priest. And interestingly enough, the other one is if a man lies both with his wife and her mother, or with his wife and her wife's daughter, his stepdaughter. Which is intriguing, isn't it? Because here, Tamar has been promised to his son... 
and he slept with him instead, or her with him instead, uh, but he just wants, he's not thinking about that. He doesn't realize that this involves him. He just wants to get rid of her, let her be burned, and so she comes. Um, in verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And so she says, hey, I'll see you at the burning tomorrow, but here's the other guilty party. It's the man these things belong to. And so he opens up the package and there's his things, okay? Now, Jesus calls us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I don't think you can say that Tamar's held up both sides of that. But wise as serpents is clearly the truth, right? She's thought through this plot, and it plays out exactly as she wanted to. She was promised a son. She, in her society, had no way to go about it. She comes up with a way to accomplish it and a way to indict Judah for his sin, and notice how he responds. To his credit, verse 26, Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. So two points. One, he just recognizes, oh, there's no justification for me in this. There's no yeah buts, right? There's no way that I can say, yeah, I I was totally wrong to do this, but she still deserves to die, right? He's caught red-handed in this thing. But the second thing I want you to notice is he doesn't justify any sort of weirdness because of this past weirdness. It says that he never knew her again. In other words, he didn't go, well, we've already made things super weird, so let's continue in this path, right? Simply put, that manifests repentance. He doesn't just own up to it. It's not merely confession. He also ends the practice. He puts it to death, okay? This is not a story you want to tell your grandchildren. That's for sure. But he also doesn't use it as an excuse to continue on and do whatever he wants. And so we see in verse 27 that she gives birth. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Okay, so somehow, maybe she's big enough to carry, and, you know, her great-great-grandmother-in-law had had twins, somehow they recognize there's two babies, and so when the first one starts to be born, they want to mark that this is the firstborn, that this is the oldest. So they tie a small red thread around his wrist. But, surprise, surprise, as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which if you couldn't guess, means breach. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Now, why does it tell us this? It tells us this because Perez is going to be the line. Once again, it's not the older brother, but the younger, okay? Uh, It's Perez that this line is going to follow through. But that's the whole story. It just moves it far enough away that Judah now has, even though it's through a creepy and total mess, now has a descendant. The line is going to continue. Then it goes back to the story of Joseph. Why? Because it doesn't matter if Judah has a new baby grandson slash son. It doesn't matter if that's the case, if they're all going to die in a famine. Right? Really, the story of Joseph is about the preservation of Israel broadly. Okay? Joseph is the candidate. He's the one that goes about that. But it's broader than that. It's not just a success story where we just, if you try really hard, even when things are sucky, God's just going to advance you and you'll be second in the kingdom. That's not what this story is about, okay? It's about God's incredible provision 
uh, for the people of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. In other words, meanwhile, back at the ranch, getting back to our original story, he continues, verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So three parts here, okay? One, God was with Joseph, and so the things that he does prospers. Two, Potiphar sees this in Joseph and leans into it and gives him more and more authority, okay? There was probably a third thing there. I don't remember what it was. So let's just keep reading. Verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and in his field. Does that sound familiar? What we're hearing is the same blessings that were promised to Abraham and Isaac and the same recognition by foreigners of those blessings playing out. Remember how Laban said, I'm blessed because of your sake, Jacob. And now Potiphar says the same thing to Joseph. Uh, and um, then there's one statement here at the end of this description, verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Which is basically just a way of saying that, that he could just take care of himself because Joseph took care of everything else. Okay. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Basically, he looked like Donny Osmond. Okay. Um, but it's very rare. It's very rare in, in um, Hebrew storytelling to describe physically people's beauty. We know that it was said of Rachel. Um, it is eventually said of David. But it's relatively rare. But it tells us that because it sets up what happens next. Verse 7, And after the time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Okay, and so this is Potiphar's wife. She sees that he's handsome and well-built, and eventually she just confronts him and just says, Sleep with me. But, verse 8, He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Okay. Now, I want you to notice what Joseph doesn't say. He doesn't say, but we'll get caught. He doesn't say, but, you know, I'm, I'm just a slave. I have no rights. I'm risking my... He's not thinking specifically about himself at all, okay? If there's any passage that denies the reality of the ethical movement called consequentialism, it's the story of Joseph, okay? Because his consequences are awful and his behavior is outstanding, right? He eventually gets accused of rape because he wasn't involved in infidelity. That's what happens, and he chooses that. He takes that instead of the other. But notice here, he basically says, how could I treat Potiphar this way? You see, when we talk about adultery, when we consider it for ourselves, 
we use softer language, we call it an affair. We almost always, when you have these conversations with people and they're talking about it, we root it in the concept of love, right? I'm pursuing love. And C.S. Lewis likes to point out, well, it's probably not seen as loving to the spouse that you're cheating on, right? It's, it's such a limited point of view. When you read the book of Proverbs, it says one of the things you should consider before committing adultery is how the husband is going to respond. And that's true. That's a way to think about it, but that's not what's on his mind. He says, how could I do this to the husband? He recognizes here that it's not just a denial of their covenant, but it's a denial of trust. Think of how often an adulterous relationship springs out of a place of trust, right? You have the inside track in this relationship because of, you've been invited into this. And Joseph just says, no way, I can't do that. And then lastly, he says, this isn't about sinning against Potiphar. This is about sinning against God. His reasons for doing this are surprisingly profound. It's hard to even compare him to young false report slandering Joseph because he's so upright, because his head's on so straight here. And so he says this, he lays it out and he says adamantly and effectively, no. But, verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he can, she's continuously to offer up, to barter with him, to to draw him in, to tempt him. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. In other words, she's changed her posture here and now she's moved it into, well, if I can just get him to hang out with me alone, that's what lie beside me means, then I can probably get from there around the rest of the bases. And he refuses even that, right? He's wise enough here that he doesn't even put himself in a precarious circumstance, right? He doesn't compromise in any way Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, okay, and so they're alone. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Okay, so first, Joseph has this beautiful garment and his brothers rip it from him and he's thrown in a pit and takes on the clothes of a slave. Now, his garment is grabbed by Potiphar's wife, she's going to just, this is the final push. This is her final attempt. She's got him by the scruff, by the clothing, and he wiggles his way out of his clothing and flees from the house. It, the, the word here for garment is so generic. Outer clothing, inner clothing, it's, it's hard to tell exactly how much Joseph is wearing, but it's not public appropriate, whatever it is that he's going out in. And so he flees from the house and leaves the garment behind. I mentioned that repeat of the garment because it's going to come up again. The author is intentionally tying the whole story of Joseph around clothing. Okay? And so he leaves the garment in her hand and flees. It seems very likely to me that when Paul exhorts Timothy to flee youthful lust, that he's drawing on this image right here. He is not just fighting her off at this point. He gets out of Dodge, right? He runs out of the house. He worms his way out of his clothing, and he's gone. And so, verse 16, she laid up his garment by her... Uh, we got to go back a little bit. Um, verse 14, she called to the men of her household and said to them, she, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came, in, he came in to me to lie with me, and cried, I cried out with a loud voice. 
And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She only changes one little thing in the story. Well, it's two things, actually. One uh, is an issue of timing. And so what did we read in the story? He flees, she yells. What's in her story? She yells, he flees. And that leads us to number two. Obviously, she changes her from the, being the aggressor to the victim. And so she says, he came and he attacked me and he disrobed in front of me and ran away. Not, I tried to take off his clothes and he ran away, right? But notice it starts with the servants. She wants to get the whole household on her side. She wants to make sure the story they hear is controlled by her. So if Potiphar goes vetting for witnesses, they know exactly what happened. And then she continues, verse um, 16, she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She sets it aside. In verse 17, she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, notice he does a couple of things. First, both with the servants and with Potiphar, she makes sure they both understand that he's a foreigner, right? She's playing up the risk here, this foreigner. Second, she blames Potiphar. She says, you let this guy into my house, right? She's incredibly skilled at manipulation. Verse 19, and as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So Joseph does the right thing, and it lands him in jail. We have to be okay with that. If you reduce your life down to consequence... If you feel like you deserve the right outcome because you behaved the right way, you're neglecting the heart of the story of the Bible, that Jesus lived a perfect and righteous life and yet was despised, rejected, betrayed, injustly declared um, you know, guilty, and then put to death. Justice will prevail, but that's not a promise that it will prevail today or even tomorrow, or before you die. That the universe will be set right isn't a guarantee that living right leads to the right happenings. And so you have to own up to that up front. In fact, what did Jesus say? He says, if you try and do righteously, you will be persecuted. Think of Potiphar's wife's motives here. Why does she go this route? Is she really just trying to cover up her reputation? Does she just realize, oh, this got so out of hand? If people, if, I mean, people are going to go, hey, Joseph, why are you running around in your underwear? And he's going to tell, is that the risk here? No, this is revenge, right? This is, if I can't have him, then he's going to pay. But despite this fact, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so what happens here? Joseph is unjustly sold into slavery. As a slave, he performs admirably and won't even betray his master when constantly tempted to do so, and it lands him in prison. But even there, the story starts over again, and so what does it say here? It says in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph in prison, 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so we see the same pattern playing out again. But remember the dreams in the beginning. How far away do we feel from this plan, this dream? Someday you, my brothers, someday mom and dad, you're all going to bow down before me. We couldn't be further away. Dad thinks I'm dead. I'm in a completely different country. I was a slave and now it's even worse. I've landed myself in prison. But, but it's all of these things actually, as you probably know, moving towards the fulfillment of these things. If Joseph's brothers hadn't slowed, uh, sold him into slavery, he never would have ended up in Potiphar's household. If he wasn't in Potiphar's household, he never would have been wrongly accused and ended up in prison. If he wasn't in prison, he wouldn't have met the, uh, the baker and the cup holder of the king and and then he wouldn't have prophesied or told him what their dreams meant. If he didn't tell them what their dreams meant, granted, he wouldn't have been forgotten by the cupbearer when he was restored, but when Pharaoh had dreams and the cupbearer went, oh yeah, all of those things consequentially go together, okay? This is why we're so bad at thinking about the future, okay? Because the way that God draws lines is directly related to the fact that he is omniscient. He knows how things are going to go down. And any plan you make is just the plan of a dust particle. You know, it's just your limited view of, I guess this makes sense to me. But just remind yourself again how big the world is. Remind yourself again about uh, the fact that, like, in a time like this, at any time there could be a terrorist attack. There's all these interruptions to life. You don't even know if your car is going to start tomorrow. And you have all these plans about how your day is going to go. And what do you do when things go sideways? What do you do when everything falls apart? Usually we despair. We think that's the end. All of my dreams are crushed. Everything I thought God had for me. God, where are you? Why do you think it's constantly repeated here, but the Lord was with Joseph? Because if we read the story without that, we wouldn't think it's the case. And what's striking about Joseph, and I don't think this is without struggle, but he's faithful despite this. You know people personally who in his shoes would have gone, why do I care what God thinks of my sin? Of course I'll sleep with you, Potiphar's wife. He just let me be abandoned and sold into slavery. He doesn't care about me. You would think now that he's in prison, he'd go, ah, forget about it, I'm not even going to try but he serves and he loves and he faithfully there as a prisoner. It really is a striking story. Chapter 40. Sometime after this. So he's been in prison for a while. He's been in Egypt for a while longer than that. We'll find when he, uh, when he takes office with Pharaoh, it's been 13 years. He's 30 now. Okay. A long period of time that we're covering here. But sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. We're not told what it is, but it lands both of them in prison. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. Now there is an interesting statement there. If you remember, Potiphar is the captain of the guard. 
And so some even think that what happens here is not that Potiphar believes his wife's story. That's not why he's angry. He's angry because she's just soiled Joseph's reputation that he has to do something. And so he moves him to, to prison. Um, I think the way the story is going and the fact that Joseph is about to refer to the prison as a dungeon probably means it's not that great of a circumstance, okay? Um, but nonetheless, at this point, there's some sort of restoration of relationship there. So he's actively working with prisoners, not just the ones in the prison, but the king's prisoners, the ones that are, you know, the prison is effectively Potiphar's basement. That's the idea here. Okay, and so verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended to them, and they continued for some time in custody. More time passes. Verse 5, one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each in his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. So they have these dreams, both of them on the same night, and they're talking about it in their cell the next morning, and they're overwhelmed because they feel that the dreams matter, and they recognize that in prison they don't have access to the usual people they would talk to about these things. And so it's like having the key to your future and not, you know, not at the same time. Enough so that when Joseph comes in, he can tell that they're tremendously disturbed. And so he asks them, what's wrong? And they explain. And so notice how Joseph responds here, and notice how simple his response is. Joseph said to them, this is halfway through verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, dreams? I'm great at dreams. Right? And remember here, he's talking to two Egyptians who believe in gods, plural. But he basically just says, hey, my God can handle that. Why don't you tell me what they are? There's a humility in it, and there's also a confidence. And once again, it's striking. And so they tell him, verse 9, the chief cupbearer told him his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossomed, shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it's well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention to me Pharaoh, mention me to Pharaoh to get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So he uses the same word here that his brothers threw him in. He's back in the pit. He got on his feet in Potiphar's house. He's back here. And he doesn't just say, hey, remember me because I did you a solid in telling you what the dream meant. He said, remember me because I'm innocent. But effectively, he says, this is what the dream means. The three branches, and if you notice the verbs for what the branches do, they blossom, they bud, and they bear fruit. And the three things, the three verbs for what the cupbearer does, he presses them, he pours them into a cup, he gives it to Pharaoh. There's this repetition of three. He says, that's for three days, and you're going to be restored. You'll once again have your old job back. So he tells him this. He says, please, when you get out, remember me in three days' time. In verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. 
There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And so, in some ways, the dream is similar. Not three branches, which makes sense for a cupbearer, right? His dream is about wine. Here, the baker dreams about bread, and so he sees three baskets on his head, but the birds, he knows that he's baked this for Pharaoh, but the birds are just flying down and eating the bread out of the top basket. That should be ominous to you, right? It's a clear difference. And so the interpretation is given. And so he says in verse 18, Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. The last one he said, hey, cupbearer, it's gonna be okay. Pharaoh's gonna lift your head. He's gonna restore you to your place. He says the same thing here but he says, lift your head from off your body. It's an intense moment of revelation that this is not a good dream. He's going to be put to death. Um, It may be here, because of the role the baker and the cupbearer played in the fact that they feed the king, that there was a conspiracy plot, okay? And so he just gets rid of both of the men who might be likely to poison him, and he finds out over the course of this which one was guilty. But we're not really told what's going on, but we do see that the dreams are fulfilled. Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Some of you are old enough to remember Get Smart. I watched a lot of, uh, of replays of old television shows, so I do as well. But you read that line, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. And I think in my mind that old Maxwell Smart sentence missed it by that much. Right? It's so close. And yet nothing goes right in Joseph's life. And so he does this amazing thing. God uses him right in the midst of the prison. He's been faithful and successful. And it looks like he's going to get out, but he's forgotten. Chapter 41, after two whole years. Just emotionally, think about that for a second. Joseph watches everything play out according to what God has given him. Do you think he's seeing some purpose in that? Do you think he's like, finally, God is doing something. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Clearly God has put them here to get me out. And two years go by. It never says that Joseph is discouraged, but we will recognize that when he names his sons, he names one of them, finally, God has made me forget my past. Okay, these are not good days. This is not Pollyanna, okay? He's not whistling through this whole thing. It's hard. So two years go by, and Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reeds reed grass and behold seven other cows ugly and thin came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile and the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows and Pharaoh awoke so he has this dream and next to the Nile he sees seven beautiful healthy cows and then coming out of the Nile are these like zombie gaunt bone and skin cows and they eat they cannibalize the other ones and he wakes up in a cold sweat and then The next night, he fell asleep, verse 5, 
uh, actually, I guess it's the same night. And he dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Okay, and so he wakes up from this nightmare and realizes not only that it was only a dream, but that it was just like the other one. Seven healthy cows, seven good stalks of wheat. Seven unhealthy cows, seven unhealthy stalks of wheat, and the unhealthy devour the others. And so he's disturbed by this. And so in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who, would, who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And so he exhausts his resources. He feels that this is a premonition, that it's important, and that it's not good news. And he has nothing. Then, verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I, having a dream with its own interpretation, and a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When he told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, and I was restored in my office, and the baker was hanged. And so now he goes, oh, I completely forgot about this. It may be when he says, I remember my offense, that he's just giving us the context. You remember when you threw me in prison? But it'd also be maybe like, oh, I didn't keep up my end of the bargain. I, now I remember that I forgot. I am such a terrible friend. Okay? It's hard to tell which one. But either way, he tells him the story in verse 14. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And notice this. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Again, we see a change of clothes. Okay? It says he shaved himself here. This is because the Egyptians, maybe you've seen this in Hollywood portrayals, did not like hair. Not just head hair, but beard hair, body hair, they were constantly, it was seen to be more pure to shave. And so, so this is part of the reason why Joseph is unrecognized, because he's not a hairy Hebrew. He's a bald Egyptian, okay? But here, he shaves just to go into Pharaoh's presence, and he gets there, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so once again, he defers from the credit. For, for one last occasion tonight, recognize how striking that is. Here he has an opportunity to get in Pharaoh's favor, and he still distances himself from it. He doesn't say, that's right, I'm the dream master. If you tell me, uh, you know, he doesn't, he, he leaves himself out of this. We'll see him do it one more time tonight. Um, but Pharaoh tells him the dream. Now, Pharaoh repeats word for word what the narrators are already told us, but he adds a few things, and it helps us to understand how Pharaoh felt about the dream. I'll point it out as we go. So, verse 17, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Word for word the same. 19, Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all of the land of Egypt. Okay? He is disturbed by how ugly these cows are. He continues here, verse 20, And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they'd eaten... Uh, them, no one would have known that they had still eaten them, for they were still as ugly at the beginning. And so he adds something we weren't told the first time. He's struck not just by the cannibalism of the cows, but they're not fed. They don't get fat 
eating the fat cows. They just are as skinny and as, as ugly as they've always been. Then I awoke. Verse 22, also I saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted up after him, and the ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then he gives us the interpretation. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will rise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. And so he says, both of the dreams are saying the same thing. You've been given it twice so that you would know confidently that this was from God. In the mouth of two witnesses, let it be established. He says there will first be seven years of plenty, followed by seven tremendously hard years of famine that will be so bad, they'll just make you forget the years of plenty. Not only does he give an interpretation here, but we finally get to see Joseph in action. We know everything he put his hand to, he was administratively, administratively and magi- uh, um, management gently uh, gifted. But here we see how it works. He doesn't just go, here's what coming, what's coming. He says, here's what you can do about it. And he comes up with a plan on the spot. And this is what he says. Now, therefore, verse 34, let, or 33, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Notice he doesn't volunteer himself. He says, somebody's got to run this project. Go find somebody discerning and wise. He doesn't say, I know just how to fix this. You can get a reference from Potiphar. Just don't talk to his wife. And the jailer, they'll tell you that I'm good at this stuff. I was built for this, right? Instead, he says, hey, go find the wisest person you can. And here's what that wise person should do. Verse 34, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseer over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. A double tax, 20%. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it and that food shall be a reserve for the land against seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish throughout the famine. And so what he says is the plenty is here to prepare for the lean. He says, make sure and proactively and aggressively, 20%, aggressively store up, take a huge tax and store up all of this so that when the seven years of famine come, it's protected, it's stored up, and you can dole it out and Egypt will be saved. This proposal, verse 37, pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Hear the repetition, right? There was nothing that Potiphar kept from him except the food that he ate. In the same way, he says, you're second in command in all of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he sent him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And so he's given an Egyptian name. He's given a title, which is basically the Grand Vizier of Egypt. He's given a wife, and he has it made in the shade, right? He is at the top. And so he industriously starts to carry this out. Verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Okay, so there's so much of it, they kind of lose count. They're taking 20%, but they just know they have cities all over Egypt, full of silos of grain, if you will. Verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, which means to forget. Manasseh is actually a pretty common name in older documents, uh, and we assume that it's the name that you would give a child if your uh, first pregnancy wasn't carried to term, if you lost a baby. And so you'd call the second one forget in remembrance of this. But Joseph takes this idea and he broadens it, and this is his interpretation for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Notice there that he has to write off as well his father's house. God's made me forget the whole, that I was rejected and sold into slavery by my brothers. He says, I can put all of that behind me now. I'm not living in the nightmare. I've finally awoken. And then the second thing, uh, the name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful. Ephraim means fruitful in the land of my affliction. So the two realities that Joseph sees in his life that coincide is that God has set things right and that even when things are hard, over the course of all of these hardships, God has been fruitful. And so this is how he sees his life, so it's how he names his sons, verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in Egypt there was bread, parentheses, because of Joseph. Okay. Now notice here, at this point, we had 13 years, Joseph is 37 years, so it's now been 20 years. Does that sound familiar? Through the deception and the, uh, and the breakup of the family of Isaac, Jacob and Esau are separated for 20 years. The same thing happens with Joseph. He's away from his brothers for 20 years. Verse 55, when all the people of the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses, and he sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt uh, uh, to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now that's clearly the end of Act 1 in Stories Joseph. For many of us, that would just be the end of the story of Joseph, because we're so individualistic. 
right? We want to see ourselves as Joseph. We want to know that at the end there's success and then happily ever after the story is over. That's not the story that the author of Genesis is telling, okay? Not only that, but I want you to notice here that it sets the stage for Act 2 because it's not just an Egypt problem, right? It's not just famine in the land of Egypt. It's famine in the Middle East, And Egypt is the only one who's prepared for it. So people from all of the nations around start to flood into Egypt because it's rumored that they have bread. Now, why does that matter? Because as soon as we get to the next chapter, Jacob is going to go, we're starving. I hear Egypt has bread. Go. And who do they have to talk to? They have to talk to Joseph. Okay. And so there's a lot of things going on here. God is making sure that Israel... His people are taken care of in a famine, but it will also transplant them into Egypt, fulfilling the prophecy that God gave Abraham, that your children will dwell in a foreign land and they will become slaves, but I will deliver them out and bring them back to the land. All of the pieces of the game that is to come are being set. But Joseph is a primary um, aspect of that preparation. He's sent ahead of his brothers to prepare. He's sent ahead of his brothers who hated him, who despised him, to prepare for them, to keep them alive. But this is not a story about Joseph. We'll close there for tonight. We'll finish um, most of Joseph's story proper next week uh, in the book of Genesis, the week following. Let's pray. God, our hope in life is not karma. It's not what goes around comes around, and if we just do the right thing, eventually things will go our way. Our hope in life is the living God, who is not just just, but sovereign, who knows the future as he does the past, who lays out our steps before us and good works in those steps so that we might walk in them, who knows the end from the beginning. And we know that you are capable of restoring the years the locusts have eaten, that you are capable of righting the wrongs that others do against us, that you are capable of preserving us in the plots of our enemies. But we also want to confess, like the young friends of Daniel, that even if you don't deliver us, yet we will trust in you. Like Job, we want to say, even though he slay me, yet will I trust you. Because the truth is, what we have And Joseph seemed to be aware of this. What we have in you, no circumstance can take from us. No left turn or unforeseen uh, reality, no plot or wickedness can rob. Nothing can separate us from your love. I pray, Lord, that we would not be consequentialists in the way that we think about our ethics, but we would live as those who are loved. That we would filter all of our decisions through who you are, through who you've made us. I pray that you would make us faithful servants. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a good night.